Anybody love their country this morning? Amen. Amen. Fourth of July right around the corner there. I want to encourage you today. Some people say, well, Christians shouldn't be concerned about their nation. We're, we're kingdom first. But listen, the Bible says that God is coming back to judge the nations. And the Bible also says that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You and I need to pray for a godly nation, amen? Anyone who has the blessings that we have and is not thankful for them is a reprobate. We have people from all over the world clamoring to get into this country to enjoy what we have. And so be thankful this morning. Be praying for the nations. Jesus is coming back to judge the nations. And realize if we, the church, are not thankful, if we're not productive, if we're not salt and light, we're going to face the judgment of Jesus Christ. And so happy 4th of July to you. It's not just about fireworks and all these things. We're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about the implications of that in this message. But we are still in our series on repentance. It's part eight of our series on repentance. Now, after eight installments on repentance, if you haven't repented yet, you need to repent. Amen. I don't know about you, but there's something always to be repentive for, just as there's something to be thankful for. Amen. Uh, anybody have a sinless week this week? No. A couple people are going, yes. No, all of us have sins to ask forgiveness for. We have sins to repent of. Repentance is a gift from God, and it is a changing of directions, and it happens in our hearts. Amen. We don't just repent with our minds. Well, I'm sorry about that, Lord, with no intention of changing. But it's a, it's a redirection, a change of course, a change of our mind, a change of our hearts. And so we are in verse 18 of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. We're looking at all the churches that Jesus spoke to, his churches. Out of seven churches, there were five that were told to repent and we're looking at Laodicea, the last church, the church age that represents the age that we're in. And Jesus has really given a cold bucket of ice water in the face of the Laodiceans. They thought they were all that in a bag of chips. And Jesus is like, no, you're blind, wretched, naked, poor. And the list went on and we covered that. If you, uh, if you weren't here for those messages, I encourage you to listen online. We're going to pick up in verse 18 as Jesus gives counsel to the church. Understand, God just didn't point out our flaws, but he tells us the remedy. Anybody thankful for that? Is it helpful when people just come up to you and go, man, you're a hot mess. You're just all messed up. And then they walk away. How about, hey, you messed up. I was messed up. This is how God fixed my mess. Maybe I can help you fix your mess. Amen. That's Jesus. Amen. He doesn't just point out our mess. He doesn't just point out our mistakes, but he gives us the remedy. And I want to say something without fear of contradiction today. I can tell you whatever the problem is, Jesus is the answer. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? You don't know what the problem is. doesn't matter what the problem is. Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. And he's going to tell the Laodiceans the answer for their spiritual mess because they're in a, they're in a bad condition here and they thought more of themselves than they should. Now, I'm going to read verse 18 through 22 of Revelation chapter 3, and then we're going to jump in and cover 18 and 19. Jesus says this to Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be jealous, zealous, not jealous, be zealous. Maybe you need to repent of jealousy. Apparently, that's in the back of my mind. But he says, be zealous. That means get right to it, do it with enthusiasm, and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Who wants to be there? Amen. Amen. 
Also, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now listen to verse 18 and 19. Maybe just close your eyes and let it penetrate your heart. Jesus speaking to the Laodicean church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. What we need to learn from the Laodiceans who had thought so much of themselves only to be, have their inflated opinion of themselves deflated is this. There are two lessons that no matter where we are spiritually today, if you're the person who has just met Jesus, if you're gonna meet Jesus today, or if you've been walking with the Lord for 50, 60, 70 years, there are two things that are true for all of us. Number one, if we only evaluate ourselves, we're in the danger zone. Well, how are you doing? Well, I think I'm doing good. Well, I did this and I did that and, I, and I, I got a checklist and I checked all the boxes. See, husbands, if you really want to know how you're doing, ask your wife. She'll tell you the truth. Wives, if you really want to know how you're doing, ask your friends. No, ask your husbands. We have the closest relationship. We can fool a lot of the people a lot of the time but our spouse and our mom, no. So if we only evaluate ourselves, we're in the danger zone. You know, it's like, well, you know, I'm pretty bad, but I just hang around with people who are worse than me. It's like, you know, if you're a little chubby, you just get fatter friends, right? And then you're like, man, I'm the skinniest one in the group. Look at me, I'm, the, I'm looking good. We do stuff like that. We're laughing right now, but we do that. And then we compare ourselves to the people around me, and as long as we're not the worst one in the group, we think we're doing pretty good. And the Laodiceans did that. They didn't get right with God. They didn't get things right in their life. They just got fatter friends. <laughs> Second Corinthians 10, 12 says this, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, listen, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That was a real fancy way of saying if you're comparing yourself to the people who are around you and you're surrounded with worse people, you're not very wise. In first service, we, I said, do you know what the opposite of wise is? Foolish. And Pastor Mike said, Stupid. if you're from Brooklyn... <laughs> It's stupid. I was seeing people are saying foolish. I'm like, it's stupid. What's? Thank you, Pastor Mike. But yeah, it's stupid to compare ourselves with others and think, well, as long as I'm the, you know, I'm doing good. This is what the Laodiceans did. They compared themselves by themselves and to themselves, and they were not wise. They were stupid. So no matter where you are in your spiritual walk, don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself and evaluate yourself by the word of God and let the Holy Spirit search you, amen? We've got to do this. There's times we think everything's good, but it's not good. You know, and there again in relationships, you know, you ask one of the, the married people, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. And you ask the other one, I'm about to throw in the towel. I won't tell you who's usually who. But I've done marriage counseling for 30 plus years and I've come to understand that, you know, there's my opinion, her opinion, and then there's the truth. And so we can't evaluate ourselves by ourselves. That's foolishness. So the second thing that's true, no matter where we are in our spiritual walk, is this. No matter how well we're doing, there's always room for improvement. Anybody arrived today? Can anybody say, ta-da? No, no, there's no ta-da. In fact, the longer I walk with Jesus, there's less and less ta-da. Even when I do something good, Tony, I'm like, let me check my motives. Oh, yeah, they were rotten. Okay, great. You know, the, the closer we get to him, the more we see our own spiritual shabbiness. 
And so there's always room for improvement. Are we close to Jesus? Well, we can get closer. John laid his head right on Jesus's breast and heard the heartbeat of heaven. I want to be close enough to him. I don't want to just see Jesus at a distance. I don't want to just be able to pick him out of a crowd. I want to be close enough to lay my head on his breast, to hear the heartbeat of heaven. So are you close to him? Well, I don't think any of us are reclining on him at the moment. So there's room for improvement. Are we serving God? Well, we can always serve him better. I found out that even when I'm serving God, the most I've ever served God, I'm still serving myself a little bit. Anybody else have flesh? Just a pastor, praise God. Are we resisting sin? That's a good thing, but you know what? We're overcomers. We can learn to overcome sin, amen? It's good start to resist, but we are overcomers. We shouldn't be struggling with the same sin decade after decade, saved in your teens, struggled through your 20s, all the way 50, 70 years old on your death. No, listen, we are overcomers. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So you're resisting sin? Good, but let's learn to be overcomers. Are we kingdom-minded? We could be, but we can be 100% sold out. Jesus said to his parents when he left them and they found him in the temple, what's the matter with you? I had to be about my father's business. You see, he walked every step on this earth, not doing his will, but the will of him who sent him. And you and I should reach for that. We could be kingdom-minded, but then we could be 100% sold out. Are we concerned about souls? That's a good thing but we can win souls to Christ. The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. That means Christians who don't let people to the, the Lord are stupid. Thank you, Pastor Mike. <laughs> I don't talk about Jesus. That's stupid. I don't, I don't give the gospel to anybody. That's stupid. I don't lead anybody to Christ. I don't invite anybody to church. Thank God for Brooklyn in the house. <laughs> Telling the truth. So there's always room for improvement. Luis H. Lieber said, there's always room for improvement. In fact, it's the biggest room in all of our houses. So the biggest room we have is the room for improvement. Amen? That doesn't mean new hardwood floors and carpet, ladies. That means (laughs) spiritual growth. Laodicea had been uncovered, and they were about to be corrected by Jesus in a way that would deflate their inflated opinion of themselves. All of us in life at one moment or another have had an opinion of ourselves that was a little bigger than it should have been. Anyone willing to admit it? Amen. You know, it's the Bible says not to think more of ourselves than we ought. You know, we think, well, I'm all that in a bag of chips, and the Lord is saying, uh, no. You're, you're a hot mess. Amen. And you know, when that happens, it deflates us. Maybe you were a, a little fish in a big pond. You know, like you see this with kids in sports. They're, they're in a small school and they're, they're the best one on the baseball team, the basketball team. And then they go to college and they don't even make the bench. That'll let the wind out of your sails. And Lewis, that's exactly what happened to the Laodiceans. They were all puffed up, and Jesus hits them, boom, with a bucket of ice water. And he's about to correct them. He says, no, you're you're not rich, and you're not spiritually in good shape. You're blind, wretched, poor, and naked. And then he begins to counsel them. I want to say something about this. You say, well, why does Jesus have to be, you know, so direct and so, you know, it's almost like it's cruel what he does. I want to say something. When, when we're deceived, the greatest act of love is when someone tells us the truth. Jesus said to them, you're, you're blind, you're wretched, you're poor and naked, and you do not know. Meaning what? That they were deceived. This is love. Telling someone who's deceived who's stuck in sin, who's in danger of eternal consequences, telling them the truth is love. There's a lot of churches that won't tell the truth anymore because it's offensive. And so they don't want to tell the truth about sin and idolatry and sexual immorality and fornication and homosexuality. Oh, well, don't say that. You're going to hurt their feelings. Listen, that's not love. 
We love everybody here. We love people that struggle with all kinds of sins. We love homosexuals. We love people who are drunkards. We love thieves and liars. I went into prisons and counseled people who were pedophiles. And you say, ooh, how did you do that? Because God loves them. And we love everyone. But listen, it's not loving not to tell someone stuck in sin that they need to repent of that sin or there's going to be eternal consequences. Put your hands together. So don't you dare not love certain people. Pastor Rick will find you and he will lump you. Oh, we, we don't like that. Oh, that's not, no, we don't go for that. Or we don't play that. Or, you, know, you know, this sin we tolerate, this sin we're just, ugh. All of us have been saved by sin. What, were we going to like a, a nicer spot in hell? I only had a little sin. I was going to the air-conditioned section of hell. No, we were all lost in our sin. And so we love everybody, but we have to tell the truth. And Jesus loved the Laodiceans enough to tell them the truth. This is love. When you tell someone the truth in love and tell them that God has a better plan for your life. He has a better way. He can set you free. Don't listen to the world that tells you, you got to be this way. You're born this way. Listen, God can set captives free. But the church has got to tell the truth in love. In the remaining verses here, Jesus gives what he calls his counsel to the Laodiceans. And we looked at verses 18 through 20. By God's grace, that's all we're going to cover today. But the first part of his counsel is spelled out in verse 18. And I want you to hear it again. I counsel you, this is Jesus speaking, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Listen, and white garments that you may be clothed. Let's just stop there. The first part of Jesus' counsel is he counsels them to buy two things from him. Now, you might think, man, where, where did Jesus get into the merchandising aspect here? He's got, you know, these guys are in spiritual trouble, and he's selling them stuff? I remember one time I was a young man. I went, you know, to somebody. I confessed my sins, and they told me, pray this prayer, do this, and buy these three books. And I was like, Really? I didn't have the money, you know, like, so it's like, if I can't buy your book, I can't get for, I just like, stuck in my mind, you know, Jesus, what are you doing here? These guys are messed up. You're pointing out how messed up they are, and now you want them to buy some things from you. Now, you're going to understand really quickly, if you don't already, this is not merchandising. This is not monetary. He wants them to purchase some things from him by, you know, their act of repentance and contrition and submissiveness. Now, look at the first thing he says here. He counsels them to buy, and the first thing is gold. Say gold. gold. Say gold like you had some gold. gold. That sounded better, right? <laughs> I mean, if you just opened up uh, something, a, a, a Tupperware in your attic, you open up a tub and it was full of gold, you wouldn't go, gold. <laughs> the neighbors would hear you, gold! Jesus counsels them to buy gold. Now, I, I want you to understand something here. How many notice that gold is a little bit on the expensive side? Anybody? Gold is valuable. Gold is, you know, worth a lot. It's very expensive. In fact, in putting this sermon together, I researched the current market price for one ounce of 24 karat gold was well over $2,000. I think it was 2040 that day, an ounce. You see somebody with a big gold chain on, that's a lot of ounces. <laughs> and it's a lot of money. Now, you say, okay, Pastor, we get it. Gold, everybody knows it's valuable. Jesus is saying, buy gold from me. But let's remember, he just called these people poor. They were spiritually poor, and he tells them, buy spiritual gold. How many understand, if you tell a poor, poor person to buy gold, it's, it's almost mean. It's like going up to a homeless person in a box and going, hey, I want to give you some tips on real estate. I want to show you how to flip houses. There's a lot of money in it. Dude, I live in a box. I live in a tent. I'm not flipping anything. Jesus, what are you doing asking poor people to buy gold? It seems counterintuitive. It almost seems cruel. You see, re, the Laodiceans were called poor, but what Jesus is saying 
something to them is that you guys may be spiritually poor at the moment, but you have something of immense spiritual value that you can give in exchange for this gold that I have with your name on it. And the thing that the Laodiceans had that was of immense spiritual value to give in exchange for gold was themselves. Understand, church, Jesus doesn't want your time and he wants your money and he wants your performance and he wants your skills. Jesus wants you. He wants you. You know, and, and that should be comforting to us. Whenever we're around people that just want something from us, no matter, you know, even if we like them, like we feel a little cheap and like you're just using me. You know, often spouses feel used by each other. Do you love me or are you using me? Even married people. Uh-oh, I just started a whole <laughs> lot of fights on the way home. I... But Jesus doesn't want to use us. He doesn't need anything from us. What he wants from us is our hearts. Amen. He wants you. He wants fellowship with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. Come on, this is a beautiful thing here today, man. The God of heaven wants relationship with us. You study all the world religions out there and no other system is built on grace and faith and relationship but Christianity. It is unique. Everybody else, you got to do this. You got to seek that. You got to get some higher cosmic power and float around. No, listen, only Christianity is God sent his son to die for us so that he could have relationship with us so that we could know him and be known by him. <laughs> Praise God. So what they had to offer for the spiritual gold was the gift of themselves. And it was valuable. When we lay down our lives, when we forsake our own autonomy and independence, when we serve God with all our hearts, we in turn acquire refined gold that comes from being in right relationship with him. I know all of us can think of times where we were in perfect step with the Lord. We were walking with him. Now, maybe you're there today. Maybe you were there a little while ago. Maybe when you were young. But you and I know when we're in perfect step with the Holy Spirit, when, when sin is, you know, driven out and, and we have, we're being obedient to the call of God in our life, that's when our lives are the most blessed. Why? Because the precious gold of relationship begins to heap down upon our lives. Amen. We also know that when we're out of step with God or we're in rebellion or we're in sin, there's a lid over us. And we might be going to heaven, but we're having a hell of a time getting there. Anybody ever been there? Man, this is rough. Nothing's going right for me. You know, my car breaks down, the motor falls out. Now I'm walking and I got a hole in my shoe and it's leaking. Some people have never been there. God bless you. Your day is coming. But this precious gold the gold of the kingdom of heaven. God wants to pour it out upon us, but it's through relationship. You know, it's our own self-sufficiency that keeps us deceived by sin. The Laodiceans were self-sufficient. They judged themselves by themselves and they deemed that they were doing an awesome job and they were deceived by sin. It's only our total surrender that allows the treasures of heaven to overwhelm us. You know, this is... The fourth is marks the celebration in our nation of our independence. You know, I don't know what they teach in school anymore, but the 4th of July is our Independence Day. It celebrates the fact that we had shuck off the tyranny of the British monarchy, that there was a king thousands of miles away that taxed and ruled over us, and we said, no, we, we're not going to serve a king. We're, we're not going to serve man. We're going to build a nation, one nation under God. Amen? And the 4th of July is a day that we celebrate that. I just thought it was barbecue and fireworks day. No, it's to celebrate our independence from tyranny. Now, I want to say something. As an American with freedom in my DNA, there's a part of me that I will serve no king but Jesus. Amen? I don't serve men. I don't serve governments. I submit to godly government because it's scriptural. But listen, God in heaven is my God, and Jesus is my king. Amen? 
And then I, I love my family and the call of God on my life, and government is somewhere way down below. There are governments, communist governments, socialist governments, tyrannical governments that want to get rid of God, that, that persecute people who worship God. Why? Because they want the state to control the people from the cradle to the grave to take the place of God. But sometimes I think as Americans with our independence and our, you know, our, the liberty that we have and all that, we forget that being independent from man's tyranny is a good thing, but being independent of the lordship of Jesus Christ is a bad thing. I think sometimes we've taken our independence too far. Well, I serve no king but Jesus, and I don't really serve him either. Then I'm independent, then I'm autonomous, then I'm self-sufficient, and then I put a lid on my life. Because the blessings of, we all know people, I don't listen to anybody. Someday you will. Whether it's the policeman or the warden or the prison guard, someday you will meet authority. Maybe it's before the throne of God where you have to bow the knee to Jesus and spend eternity without him because you wouldn't submit to any authority. Independence is a good thing when it comes to the tyranny of men, but independence from God is the most destructive thing we can do to our soul. Let's shake off self-sufficiency and independence and be totally submitted to the kingdom of God and the king of our hearts, Jesus Christ. Amen? So buy gold from him. Give him what he wants. He wants you. Number two, the second thing Jesus says to buy uh, the Laodiceans, he's like, buy gold. And then he says, buy white garments. So ladies, it's time to get excited. We're going shopping. <laughs> it's white. We're going to put our white clothes on, our white Pat Boone shoes. And <laughs> the, the younger people are going, who? Baboon? What did he say? So he says, I want you to buy a specific type of clothing from me. Jesus requires that, you know, we are covered in the garment that he tells us to wear. Now, when we're in spiritual trouble, it's because we're clothed in the wrong things. So he says, buy it from me. Now, when we're clothed with the garments of self or this world, no matter how well-made or stylish or beautiful they are, they amount to what the prophet Isaiah calls filthy rags. When I'm clothed with self, it's filthy. When I'm clothed with the things of the world that contradicts the word of God, it's filthy. Isaiah said this in chapter 64, verse 6 of his uh, writings. He said, but we are all as an unclean thing. Listen to this. And all our righteousness, our self, the worldly wisdom, is as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. When we're clothed with self, when we're clothed with our own self-sufficiency or the things of the world, it's not pleasing in the sight of God. He says, I want you to wear this, and the world says, don't wear that, wear this. There's some of us here are old enough to remember when there was something that came out in the fashion world as designer jeans. Who remembers this? Come on, all my brothers and sisters from the 80s. It was like, you know, we just used to wear pants, and then all of a sudden, you had to wear designer jeans. And it was like there was Jordache, there was Sasson, there was, uh, who was that other one? Kelly said it in first serve. What's that? Calvin Klein, yeah. Sergio Valente. Why, why do I want Sergio on my backside? Why do I need Sergio back there. I don't, I don't know, but when you were in school, if you didn't have these jeans on, you would literally get made fun of. You know, some of us can only afford one pair, so we wear them one day, wash them the next day, wear them again. God help you if you didn't have the right jeans on, and I mean, if you had to wear, you know, if you didn't have money and you had to wear like corduroy tough skins, come on, some people just got PTSD, right? They're like, thanks for bringing that up. You know, these pants were the toughest pants. We, we were, we, me, my, me and my brother, we were animals. We would come home covered in grass. My mom was like putting iron pants on us. <laughs> but it's like the world says you got to wear this or you're going to get mocked. But God says even if you clothe yourself in the finest stuff, it's all filthy rags. 
unless you're clothed in these white garments. And the white garments represent the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. Amen. My works, my achievements, even my sacrifices. The scripture says that even if I give my body to be burned and I don't have love, it's worthless. Oh, but what about my good works? And what about, you know, and I, and I did this and I went on a short-term mission trip and I went on a Habitat for Humanity and I built somebody a house. Filthy rags. That's not going to get you into heaven. If that's what you're relying on to get into heaven, I would counsel you not to get white garments. I would counsel you to get asbestos suit. For all you slow people out there, that's fireproof. <laughs> but our good works don't get us anywhere. And the scripture, you know, is very clear about that. So I want to ask you, uh, you know, who dresses you today? Listen to what Galatians 2.16 says. Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Could that be any clearer? It's not what the world wants to dress us in. It's not Jordash or Sergio or Calvin. It's the white garment that comes from the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So who dresses you today? Have you allowed the world to dress you? Do you dress yourself? Do you stand on your own works? Have you judged yourself against others and thought, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good? Be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you'll be worthy in the sight of the Father. So Jesus, buy gold from me. He wants us. Buy white garments from me. He wants us to surrender our autonomy and be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And number three says, the third part of his counsel involves us anointing our eyes. You know, he says something here about the white garments covering the shame of our nakedness. And that's, you know, our sin being uncovered, and we get that. But then at the end of verse 18, he says, and anoint. Say anoint. That's the cover. That's to pour upon. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. So they thought they had spiritual perception, but God said, you're blind. And he says, because you're blind, anoint your eyes with eyesalve. Why? So you can see. Now, how many people, when getting ready for church today, put a generous amount of eye salve on your eyes? You're like, I don't have any eye salve. <laughs> we don't use it, and it's, it's not neosporin. Don't put that in your eyes. But back in the biblical times, they didn't have all the, you know, the amenities we had and the, you know, the things, the, the hygienic things. So they had salve that they would put in their eyes to get, you know, all the sleep out of them and all the, you know, dirt out of them and maybe deal with the bags a little bit. But eye salve, it was to restore sight. You know, they didn't have glasses and contacts and readers and cheaters and all of those things. So the eyes were given an ointment, given a salve that would, you know, help to restore sight. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Anoint your eyes. Give a generous helping of eye salve to your eyes. Why? So you can see. Eyes are so important in a spiritual sense. Why? Because spiritual blindness is what keeps us in spiritual deception. Why do we get deceived? Because we can't see. What does the Bible say about the blind leading the blind or that the fact that the world is blinded by the God of this world to see the truth, to see the gospel so they can be saved, amen? Spiritual blindness is a problem. It's what keeps us in spiritual deception. The Laodiceans, were, they, they might have had eye salve. They might have had the best whatever to put in their eyes and clothes on their body. But he's saying you're blind as a bat spiritually. And because of that, you've been deceived. Because if you can't see, you can't discern. So get some eye salve in there. And, and spiritual deception looks like this. Well, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. I'm, I'm better than all the people I know. I'm better than the people, you know, in my circle of friends. You know, I, I never stole anything. Or, or here's the one. I'm not Hitler. Only Hitler's in hell? 
He's the only one there. The devil goes down, yoo-hoo, Hitler. <laughs> there are multitudes of people in hell that have rejected Jesus Christ and rejected the one way to salvation. And so it's not about our goodness or if we didn't commit the big sins. Well, I never committed adultery. I never killed anyone. I'm, you know, I must be okay with God. That's spiritual blindness. That's religiosity that the world buys into. Do good works and do, you know, do more good things than bad things and don't kill anyone and just be better than, and, and God will accept you. That's exactly wrong. It's exactly what the Bible doesn't say. That's living by our own wisdom, our own intellect, and ignoring God's truth. Proverbs 14, 12, and Proverbs 14, 16, 25 say the same thing. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man. How many can remember a time in your life, maybe when you were a young person, maybe getting involved in a relationship, maybe on a career path, where you thought, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. This is exactly the person I want to be with the rest of my... This is exact... And you are exactly wrong. Amen. There's only two people, three people, praise God. If you, I mean, that's all of us. And we're like, man, God, thank God that you didn't answer that prayer. Because why? We, we get deceived by our own spiritual blindness because there's a way that seems right to a man, but only God knows the absolute truth, and he sees the beginning from the end, and so we need to anoint our eyes so he can show us what he sees. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So there again, every way of a man is right. Ah, this is the right thing. I know what to do. You know, I got good business sense. I got common sense. You can have all that sense. And if you're spiritually blind, you can still get deceived. There's a way that seems right to a man. Every man does right in his own eyes. The whole theme of the book of Judges. Uh, understand, these are not safeguards we want to live by. We need our eyes opened up. We need our spiritual blindness cured. And Jesus tells us to get some eye salve and to use it. There's only one thing that genuinely opens blind eyes, and that is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. When you and I come to Jesus, we get the greatest bonus that we can ever get. Yes, our sins are forgiven. We have relationship with the Father. That bridge is built, so now we can commune with the Father. But we also get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes the umpire and the referee of our souls. And he, he throws the flag. He blows the whistle. He, he says, no, stop. And what does that do? That opens our eyes spiritually so he can direct us and guide us. So if you're spiritually blind today, what we need is more of the Holy Spirit. And if we're being deceived, we need to stop leaning on our own wisdom, our own understanding, because there's a way that seems right to a man, and every man does right in his own eyes, but in the end, it leads to destruction. So God, we purchase from you the ISAV that will give us spiritual sight. Holy Spirit, help us to see and deliver us from the deception of our own pride. And help us to see in the spiritual realm so that we are not deceived. Now, verse 19 is as far as we're going to go today. And I want to cover it because, you know, we want to end on a good note here. And this is a little bit of an encouragement. Verse 19 is a bit of comfort to the Laodiceans who just got a pretty intense spiritual spanking. Anyone ever get a spanking from God? Let me raise my hand. <laughs> and I always, I said in first service, some of the people are like, your spanking is coming. It's like, because we all get it. You know, and I was reading some things online about spanking, and it's amazing the arrogance and the hubris of our intellectual community. Oh, you can't spank your kids. The Bible's wrong, and God's wrong, and this is wrong, and it creates this, and it creates that. Yeah, we haven't spanked our kids for a couple generations, and we have the most ridiculous, lazy, self-entitled people walking around. I don't know about you, but I got my hide tanned. And every time I did, I deserved it. And they only caught me like a third of the time. Sorry. 
But it's like God's, you know, and I'm not saying abuse children or beat. I'm not saying any of that. But we've got to hold up the standard. And sometimes, you know, a little, a little bit of tune up on the back end sure straightens us out. Because we've got a whole generation that doesn't know there's consequences for bad behavior. When I was a kid, I knew that there was consequences. I'm in the store. I'm being bad. I'm underneath the, the racks of clothes. I'm being bad. My mom's threatening my life. When you get home, and uh, Ginny always kept a word, amen? Sometimes I think she'll forget. She'll forget. No. Come in here. Da, da, da. And that saved me. Well, we're going to just put you in time out and think about your... Look, there's other ways. It's not always by the belt or the spoon or whatnot, but we got to hold up the standard. There's got to be consequences for bad behavior. Otherwise, we got this everybody gets a trophy generation, and we see where that's gotten us. So amazingly enough, God's way is the best way. What a surprise. Verse 19, look, you guys just got a spanking, but hey, let me tell you something about that. He says, listen what God says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So God's saying what our parents said to us, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm disciplining you because I love you. I'm spanking you because I love you. And you know, many times as kids, we were like, I wish they didn't love me so much. But the fact, parents that don't discipline their kids, it breaks something inside them. Because they get it. They don't even really care about me enough to call me out on my bad behavior. So I'm going to be worse to see if I can get their attention. Wow. You have a psychology degree? No. I got wisdom from the Holy Ghost that comes from the Word of God. And you should have it too. So... God chastens them and he gives them that spiritual spanking and he says it's, you know, it's because I love you that I rebuke you and chasten you. You know, with God, he disciplines his children. God's not the spiritual parent who just ignores their children's bad behavior. You know, we've all seen it in a couple of last generations, kids doing bad things, throwing rocks through people's window and the parents are like, well, they're just kids. No, God doesn't just go, ah, you know, boys will be boys. He disciplines his sons and his daughters. He, he does, and he does it because he loves us. And, you know, if you're not one of his, he doesn't discipline those who aren't his own. So if God never disciplines you, and there's never any consequences for your behavior, you better make sure that you're saved and that Jesus is the Lord of your life. If you're not his, he doesn't discipline you, but he does release his wrath upon you. Listen to what Romans 1.18 says. For the wrath of God, now, the, if the wrath of God, just so you know, is a lot hotter than discipline. And it is no fun in any way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God releases his wrath on the rebellious. Why? Because he hopes to produce repentance in them. If you're going the wrong way and doing the wrong thing and headed for hell and God does nothing and doesn't put any speed bumps in your way, that's not a loving God. God's not willing that any should perish. So sometimes before we came to Christ, if things were hard for us, if we went through hardships, we shouldn't think of it as, man, God was just, you mean to me. He was, he was trying to get our attention. He was flagging us down that the bridge is out ahead, that we've got to put the brakes on. And so he convicts and chastens those who belong to him and it's a tender discipline that produces godliness. He releases his wrath against the rebellious. Why? In hopes to produce repentance so that their souls are not lost. But you and I are not made for wrath. You, you and I are not made for wrath. When we study eschatology and we look at the end times and people say, well, the church is going through the whole tribulation and God's going to pour out his wrath and he's going to, you know, he's going to just lump us all up and we're going to, it's going to purify the church. Listen to me. God doesn't release his wrath on the church. The church is purified by the blood of the lamb. Nothing else will purify the church. 
You and I are pure today because of the blood of Jesus. And we are saved today and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of the blood of Jesus. And we're not going through the wrath of God like the world is, amen? Understand something here today. Uh, you and I were not made for wrath and Proverbs 21.2 says it. It says, for the way, oh, I'm sorry, it's not Proverbs 21. We already covered that. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. So write this down, and I want you to spend some time meditating on it. For God has not appointed us, that's the children of God, the people of God, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is going to experience wrath, but God is going to protect and cover and keep the church. Amen. He always has. Even in the 10 plagues with Egypt, the, the, the Egyptians went through them and God protected and covered the, his people among them, amen? We're not made for wrath. Wrath is for the rebellious and the wicked and those who refuse the grace of God. But he will convict us and he will discipline us and he will chasten us because he loves us. The chastening of God is done in perfect love. Jesus says hard things to the Laodiceans with a singular goal in mind, and it's articulated at the end of verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke, and I chasten, and here's why I do it. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Because he wants us to repent so we can have all of God's best in this life and the life to come. Let's bow our heads today. I know repentance can be a wearisome topic, and we've endured eight messages on it, and so I pray that we wouldn't become weary in well-doing because, like I said in the introduction, all of us have room for improvement. And if we're the only ones evaluating ourselves, we're in the danger zone. So this morning, let's entertain that the Holy Spirit within us would put his finger on something we need to repent of. Maybe we're stubborn, maybe we're selfish, maybe we're bitter. Maybe we have a pet sin that we refuse to stop and we even refuse to confess it at this point. Let's just take a moment to let the Holy Spirit put his finger on any area in us that we need to repent of. Something that I shared with first service was the Bible says in the last days people will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. The Holy Spirit just quickened that to me that sometimes because we're blessed and God gives us all the treasures and we make them our pleasure and we turn them into idols and we begin to be more excited about our blessings than about our God. We become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. If any of that resonates in your soul, let's just take a moment to repent that God would be the main affection of our lives and everything would be a distant second, everything else. Thank you, Lord. With our eyes closed and our heads bowed, if you're here today and you've never had an opportunity to receive Jesus into your life and accept him as Savior and, and receive him as Lord, I want to give you that opportunity today. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God rose Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. God made it so easy. We just have to come to him, confess we're a sinner, and receive Jesus as Savior, and our lives will change from that moment forward. You say, what will happen if I make that decision? What will happen is God will forgive all your sins. You might be out there saying, Pastor, you don't know the sins. You don't know what I've done. And you know what? I don't need to know because there is nothing that God cannot forgive because of what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sin. He can forgive you 
of anything. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll make you one of his very own children and write your name in the Lamb's book of life. That means your eternity will be settled, not by your good works, not by your performance, but because of the fact that you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. You'll be saved and on your way to heaven, and you'll be his from every moment forward when you make that decision. If you're here today and you want Jesus to be your Savior, you want to receive him as Lord, I just want you to lift up your hand. How many people need to do that today? Don't be shy today. God bless you, young man. God bless you. Keep your hand up. The ushers are going to put something in your hand today. Uh, this is God bless you, sir. Praise God. Front row, uh, second row, Paul. Let's, we're going to say a prayer together in a minute. This is the most important part of our service. It changes lives. Let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize you're the Savior. And I ask you to be my Lord. I, I ask you to forgive my sins and fill me with the Holy Spirit. From this moment forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him praise. Welcome to the family of God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, no matter how many times we give an altar call like that, I never want us to lose uh, the fact that, I never want us to miss the fact that these are life-changing moments. Amen. When I, listen to me, those of you who raised your hands today, when I was 14 years old in this very place, I made that decision and came up to this altar and God changed my life and he has never left me and I have never been the same. So your life, the trajectory of your life has been changed for eternity with that decision. I wanna welcome you to the family of God. And you know, and I, I got saved here and I never left. So you might get stuck here too, but whatever the case is, I encourage you, wherever God leads you to read your Bible, it's God's love letter to you. It's the manual for living. Begin to pray and develop a relationship with him. You say, how do I develop a relationship with God? The same way you do with anyone else, spending time together and communicating with each other. And that's prayer and Bible reading. And if you do that and come to church, your faith will grow from this moment forward and the enemy won't be able to drag you back. You'll go forward in God all the days of your life. Amen.